Good, good. All right, we'll open up to Acts chapter 16, and let's see what kind of truths we can dig out of this chapter tonight. All right, Acts chapter 16. What happened last week in the first 10 verses of 16? Say it again. Timothy comes along. Yeah. So Paul and Silas are going along on their second missionary journey, right? And they pick up young Timothy. And Paul notices that he is, um, recognizes that there's value in him. And he says, well, I want him to, to come along and to travel with us. And so he takes Timothy, he circumcises Timothy, and he joins them. And then at the end of that section, who else joins them? Yeah, Luke shows up, right? Luke is the author of our book, and we get down to verse 10. He starts speaking of himself as being part of that party. He says, and then we went on, and um, God had called us to go preach the gospel to them. And so up until this point, he had been speaking um, third person. Is that right? Um, not including himself. And then he starts including himself in uh, the, the way that he's speaking. So... I got a map up here, and that was really just to try to get you guys to sit close because it's a tiny map. Um, but really, in the second missionary journey, they start off down here in Jerusalem. They head up to Syria. They make their way over here. This is where Paul went on his first missionary journey to, um, through Derby, Lystra, went up to Iconium, Antioch. And then he's going to head up here to Troas. And we started reading last week about how they got up here and they didn't really know where to go. They wanted to go into these different Asian cities and the Spirit wouldn't allow them. He hindered them from going into these different areas, these different places, closing door after door. And now we're going to pick up in verse 11. Well, actually, I'll go back a little bit. I'll start. Let's start in verse 6. So they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian regions. That's up in here. Um, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia. And again, the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. So that's where they end up right here on this um, little port city. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So verse 11. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis. So... That place, Matres, is a little island up here. So they head up there. And then the next day, they come up here to Neapolis. And what did we say was unique about this area, this region, and how they ended up there rather than over here in Asia? Anybody? It was pretty. It was pretty. Well, it may have been. I'm sure it was. But we didn't mention that last week. So they weren't permitted to go to these other areas in Asia they wanted to go to. Um, instead, they went to this island, then up to Neapolis. What's, just looking at this map, what's different about this area over here from this area over here? 
it's north, it's smaller. Um, it's yeah, it's a completely different continent. So this is the first time that they're going into Europe. So this is um, Europe. This is Asia Minor. It's not what we know as Asia today, but this is the first time that they're ending up in Europe, and the gospel is being spread to Europe. Um, what do we remember about the gospel spreading from Acts? What is Acts one eight? Anybody have that memorized? You guys should have Bibles in your hands if you don't have it memorized, right? What is Acts 1 8? Alright, so they had already left out of Jerusalem. Samaria is right here, like right next to Jerusalem, right? Um, Judea is not much bigger. And. Now they're getting into the remotest parts of the earth. They're getting into a, a completely different continent, spreading the gospel for the first time, um, which is exciting. It's an early church getting out and fulfilling their mission that Jesus had left them with, to go out into the remotest parts of the earth with the gospel. And so we end up here in Neapolis in verse 11. Verse 12 says, from there they went to Philippi. Philippi is just 10 miles inland from Neapolis. Um... And says that it is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. So it was a, a Roman colony. So Rome had come in, they colonized Philippi um, about 50 years before Jesus was born, and set up a district there, and it was booming. It was a big metropolis. Yes, Jeff? Uh, at this point, yeah, they, they jumped a ship here in Troas over to Samothrace whatever that is, um, the island. And then they went to Neapolis. And then once they were there, then they had to get off the ship and go 10 miles inland to Philippi. Yeah, they walked away from Yeah, they were used to walking. Yeah. What was that? I said they walked a lot in those days. Quite a bit. Much more than, than we do. And didn't complain about it, right? All right, so Philippi was this big, booming city. And, of course, Paul, being the mission-minded man that he was, wanting to go out and fulfill his ministry that he was given um, to take the gospel to the utter, uttermost parts of the earth, um, he wanted to go where the people were. Um, that should be our goal, our desire in evangelism and sharing Christ. We want to go where the people are so we can share with them. And that's why he ends up in Philippi. Verse 13 says, On the Sabbath day we went out we went outside of the gate to the riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the women who had assembled there. <coughs> so there was no um, yeah, no no men. It took ten men to gather them together to make a a synagogue, thank you, I was looking for that. Um, a synagogue where they would gather on the Sabbath and they would worship there. And if they didn't have ten Jewish believing men who could come together, then they didn't have a synagogue in that city. And so there was no synagogue in Philippi. And so there was just a bunch of women who were gathered together for prayer down by the, the river. Um, because of their their Jewish, Jewish ritualistic um, things that went along with prayer, they needed water there for... Uh, cleansing ceremony type stuff so it was common for them to go down to the river where they had access to that water so they were down there praying and 
Paul and his colleagues went down there to meet with them. Verse 14 says that a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics and a worshiper of God, (coughs) was listening. (coughs) And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And so last week we were talking a little bit about why is it that um, the Holy Spirit wouldn't allow them to go into these other cities. They're trying to go out, they're trying to preach the gospel, they're trying to do what it is that God has called them to do, but they're finding all these roadblocks. And we concluded, well, it was important for them to get over to Europe, right? And they're going to run into this gal, this Lydia, who is really influential in Philippi, influential in this early church. And it was obviously important that they ran into her, that they met her. And it says in verse 14 that Lydia, when she heard, she decided of her own accord to follow and believe, right? No. What does it say in verse 14? Yeah, she was listening because when they were preaching to her, she was listening. But the Lord is the one who opened up her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Um, So Luke, all throughout, we can see in his theology, he is Calvinistic, right? He has a proper understanding of how God is the one who works in our hearts. He's the one who turns our hearts to himself. He's the one who draws us to himself. He's the one who gives us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. He's the one who was working in the heart of Lydia so that she could hear and understand. And unless the Lord does that in our hearts, then we're not going to hear. We're just going to be deaf and, and dumb and blind. And hearing, we won't understand. And seeing, we won't perceive. It's the Lord who has to come along and, and work in our hearts. And then when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So right away, we see in, in Lydia's life, fruit, that she wants to be hospitable. She wants to love on these believers, these Christians, welcome them in, feed them. And it says that she was persistent in, in this. She wasn't going to take no for an answer. But she wanted them to come in and to, to rest with her and to take up um, refuge there rather than going to some hotel, which really was pretty sleazy in those days. She invited them in. Um, out of the kindness of her heart, her heart that had then been changed by the Lord. And what else do we notice in verse 15? Who else do we see other than Lydia? Her household. So Lydia was baptized along with her household. And we're going to see that in a little bit with the Philippian jailer, that it's not just Lydia, it's not just the jailer, but their households are included in this as well and spoken of when it's speaking of baptism. Any thoughts or insights on Lydia, verses 11 to 15? What is um, So that was a, a common thing in Thyatira. So here's Thyatira. So she had moved across the sea just like they had, and it was common to for people in Thyatira to take uh, these um, shells from the the sea, these sea fish, and make purple dyes out of them. And they'd sell them to royalty for a high cost because only the the royalty would wear purple in that day. They had lots of plain colors, just blacks and browns and dull colors. And so to have any kind of popping color really 
meant that you came from money. And if you had purple, it meant that you were of royalty. And then because everybody else wanted to be like the, the royalty, uh, they wanted purple fabrics too. She, well, not her specifically, but the common practice was to take roots. And you could also make a purple dye out of a, a root, but it was kind of a, a knockoff purple, um, not quite the same as a royalty purple. So they'd sell that to the to the lower class people. So um, because she was in that that business, she was a seller of purple. It's likely that she was pretty wealthy. And we read farther down at the end of the chapter. Um, verse 40 says that they went out of the prison so we're jumping ahead here um, and they entered the house of Lydia and when they saw the brethren they encouraged them and departed so we see that her house here is used for kind of an early church type thing she had a a house church that met in her house so um, she probably had quite a bit of money to be able to house a group of people to gather and meet any other thoughts or questions on Lydia before we move on? We are in Acts 16. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're good. All right. So since you know where we're at now, will you read for us Acts 16:16 16, 16 through 18? Thanks. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us and brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned to the, to the said, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Alright, so Luke, right on the hills of telling us about Lydia, this woman who comes to faith, this woman who is uh, becomes a, a, a leader, kind of, in this, this early church. Um, right on the hills of that, he tells us about this slave girl who is demon-possessed. And what does this demon allow her to, to do that is unique? Yeah, she, she's some kind of fortune teller, some kind of um, schemer or something, right? Charlatan, uh, maybe. Um, but she has this ability that the her owners take and monetize, and they use it to make money for themselves. Um, the the word there that's spoken of her as um, having a spirit of divination is related to um, a, a a puppet a puppeteer, right? Um, well, what is that called when you have a no other one, huh? No, or you don't open your mouth. Ventriloquist, yes. Thank you. So um, that word, spirit of divination, is related to that word of ventriloquist. So she's being used as a puppet by by Satan and his forces to do the the work of Satan. Um, she's just speaking on his behalf. And what does she say that gets Paul all up and bothered? She is... Uh sent by the by God and acting on his authority. Yeah, that's what she says about the men, right? Okay, so she's not she's not lying, right? because um, they were bond servants of God and they were showing way of salvation. Um, but Paul was getting irritated because he knew that uh, it was from Satan. And it's likely that she was saying it in kind of a mocking fashion too, right? Not 
trying to herald and proclaim and point people to, oh, here are the bond servants. They're telling you the way of salvation. Went on for days and days, and Paul got tired of it. He said, no, um, we're not going to do that. And he cast her out. And you would think if her owners actually cared about her at all, they would be happy with the fact that this young lady was taken care of, this demon was gone, she wasn't being oppressed anymore. But instead, they got upset. And what did they do? Oh, that's in the the following verses. So verse 19 says, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And so it tells us right there, their hope of profit's gone. So their whole motivation is financial gain. They're just looking out for themselves, and they're seeing that their their way to get money has been disposed of. They don't have this this trick pony anymore, and they're going to figure out something else for, for money. So they take Paul and Silas before the authorities. Um, notice at this point, they don't take Timothy and um, Luke. They're not included in this. So it's just the the two Jewish men that they take. Remember, Timothy is part Jewish. Um, his mom was a Jew. His dad was a Greek. And then Luke wasn't Jewish. He was a, a Gentile. So they don't bother with them. Verse 20 says, And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. So we were already told that their motivation was a financial one, right? They were upset that they lost their ability to make money, but then they bring them before the authorities and... Of course, they don't say, well, they they cast this demon out of this girl that we were taking and manipulating and getting money from. No, they say they're throwing everything into confusion. They're trying to paint a different picture. Our kids do this to us all the time, right? Um, come to us and say, just tell us one side of the story. And oftentimes that story is not aligned with reality. Um, and that's what they're doing here. They're coming up and they're saying... Um, well, they're really they're causing a, a ruckus. They're causing confusion, and they're telling us to do things that we as Romans aren't allowed to do. So in Roman culture, they had to have permission to to worship different gods, to follow different religions. They had um, it had to go through kind of a, a Senate approval type thing. It had to go through the state for them to have a recognized religion, and that hadn't happened with Christianity. And so Christianity is just following after one true God. It's denying all the other gods, calling them idolatrous. That wasn't cool within the Roman system. The Roman system was very much like our, our current culture where to make claims of exclusivity was not a cool thing. But to be open-minded, to be ecumenical, to say, well, you have your truth and you have your truth and I have my truth, that was hip. That was in back then, right? And Christianity didn't conform with that idea of religion. And so these men use that to to throw a, a claim against Paul and Silas and get them thrown into prison. Um, verse 22. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. So these guys are putting on a show too, right? They're tearing off their robes. They're making a big scene out of it. Um, they're maybe they really are upset and bothered by it, but I kind of get the the picture that they're putting on a show because they have the crowds there and they're tearing off their robes. And I don't think that they would be that upset um, 
by this claim of what the Christians are doing. Everybody knew what the Christians were doing. Paul was well known, but um, they they make a big scene and they beat them with rods. So they would take a, a bunch of sticks and put them together, and um, that's what they would use to to whip them, to beat them, tear off their clothes, and and beat them. Um, in the Jewish system, they had a, a set number, right? Um, Paul talks about his 40 lashes minus one, or his 39 lashes that he would get. But in the Roman system, remember they're in Philippi now, a Roman colony, and they don't have a, a set number. They just beat you until they get tired of beating you. And so that's what they they were exposed to, this beating by the Romans. Um, verse 23. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison and commanded the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. And so... What was their crime again? What did they do? They cast out a demon, right? And that's not even what they were um, accused of. They were accused of causing a, a ruckus in the city, making the Jews do things that they weren't permitted to do, and they were beaten with many blows, thrown into the inner part of the prison, so the coldest, darkest, most dank part of the prison where they would be most secure, and they were shackled um, and had their feet put into stocks, which doesn't just hold them secure in place, but it was designed to really inflict torture and pain. They'd be separated as far as you can to uh, induce cramps and uh, just make you uncomfortable. So it's not like you're just sitting there in handcuffs, but you're like handcuffed up to the wall with your feet spread apart and um, not something that you and I would want to go through for sure. Thoughts or questions up to verse 24. Uh, I have a small question. So, like, when it says they took off the robes, are they talking about the people who beat them or are they Paul and Silas? Because um, I thought it was saying they uh, took off the people they beat, but then, like, when Paul would, um, when Paul used to persecute the Christians, he would have someone else hold his cloaks. So that seems like that was kind of like the custom of the day. Yeah. Oh, it's not just a Yeah, the ESP says the magistrates tore the garments off them. That might be clearer language than the other. That doesn't say who the them are, though? Yeah, but or it was, yeah, off. it wouldn't phrase it that way if it was done to self, I don't think. Like it so the magistrates tore the robes off of the. Off of Paul and Silas, and then yeah, we'll go with that. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. So yeah. Okay. Stripped him down, maybe because it's part of the crowd was there too, I guess. All right. Yeah, that seems a little bit more clear. Because then they would get hurt easier without an extra cloak on. Yeah, it adds to the pain. We'll be able to better feel the the beating. (laughs) 
Yeah. Sick. All right. Verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Again, after being beaten, having skin torn off their back, thrown into this nasty prison, and being shackled with their feet in stocks, at midnight, they were singing praises and hymns to God, which is really convicting because uh, just think back the last 12 hours or so since you woke up, how many times you've complained today. (laughs) And if it's too hard for you to come up with something, think back into yesterday. Um, I'm sure we don't have to go back farther than that to think about the times that we've complained and the grumbling that we've done. Yeah, and just how self-centered we are. And yet, Paul and Silas, miles and miles away from home, being beaten for casting out a demon, like helping out this lady and uh, her her owners, and they're singing praises to God. Instead of grumbling and complaining, they are uh, lifting up praise to their maker, which is not what I would be doing, that's for sure. Um, definitely convicting. And you notice at the end of verse 25 that the prisoners were listening to them. So whether or not they were doing this um, as a kind of witness or a testimony to the people, it says that they were singing praises to God. So surely he was their the focus of their, their worship and their praise. But these other prisoners, they were overhearing what they were saying. And they were actually listening. And then suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison house was shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Now, (laughs) there are some people who say, we don't know if this was a natural earthquake or if it was supernatural. Clearly, it was a supernatural (laughs) earthquake, right? Um, (laughs) For all the doors to be opened and all the chains to be loosened, that doesn't just happen in a natural earthquake, um, which is a ridiculous thing to even suggest. So obviously this is a divinely sent earthquake, as if the others aren't, right? Every every earthquake is um, designed by God and is from the will of God. There's nothing that takes place outside of his will, but this is a special, unique, supernatural earthquake designed to open up each of these gates and And loosen these chains. (laughs) Yeah, not kill them in the process, right? Um, They're not left there in shambles, but they're left there free to walk out if they please. And it says in verse 27 that when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Um, he knew that if the prisoners escaped, then his life was on the line. That's the same thing that we saw back in chapter 12, I think. Um, that if a, a prisoner escapes, then it's the, the prison guard who is really on the hook for that. And back there, it was Herod who was in charge. That was um, back under Jewish rule. And they had that same kind of... Um, that that policy that if you had lost a prisoner then it was your head on the line and even here under Roman rule it was the same same concept 
that if you're not doing your job, you're going to pay for it Same with your life. With the resurrection of Christ, you got yep. that group of guards, and they knew full well that you know, their, their lives are on the line because he, especially Jesus, escaped. Yeah. Yeah, 12 men who are supposed to watch after Jesus, they're all sleeping on the job, literally, right? And they were afraid for their life, and they had to come up with a lie to cover for it. Um, but, yeah, that was the, the common practice, that if you lost a prisoner, then you were the one who was going to pay for it. And so this guy drew out his sword to, to kill himself. Verse 28, But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Not just Paul and Silas, but each one of them was there. And we're not sure why they're there. Um, maybe they were just freaked out and scared because they just had this crazy earthquake, right? Um, maybe they were just following the lead of Paul and Silas. Maybe they were influenced by their singing and prayers. Um, maybe it was just a, a short-term prison stint and they didn't want to risk uh, facing the Roman guards on the outside but for whatever reason none of them bolted even though the prison guard expected them to be gone um, they were all there and the guard called for the lights and he rushed in uh, remember they're on the inner prison so he had to get some lights and run in and do a head count right make sure they're all there um, and there they were all standing where they had been left are you talking about like other prisoners yeah, all the prisoners were there. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy? No, Timothy wasn't in there. Remember, it was just Paul and Silas who were taken in and put into custody. But the earthquake had opened everyone's chains, um, verse 26 said. So all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. That's not just talking about Paul and Silas, but that's everyone. And then... We don't know if they're believers. We don't know their spiritual state, but they're in jail right so i'm assuming that they're not all um good people right um but paul says we're all here nobody's left nobody's gone don't kill yourself don't hurt yourself um he goes in with the lights and trembling with fear he fell down before paul and silas and after he brought them out he said sirs what must i do to be saved and again we get here and there's some debate as to whether or not he's talking about uh, being saved spiritually, if he has an eternal focus in mind or if he's thinking temporally. Um, I tend to think that he's speaking of eternal life because all the believers or all the prisoners are there, right? So um, he's okay on that front. Nobody left. His job, his life shouldn't be um, in peril right now. But. He knows that Paul and Silas, these men who seemingly caused this earthquake, right? They were up and they were singing praises. They were singing hymns. And this guy knew who they were. They, they were believers. They were Christians. They were put in there for <laughs> causing an uproar, right? Um, but he asked them, what do I need to do to be saved? And then verse 31, very popular verse. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, surely he said more than than just that, right? Um, he clarified that and explained to them what it means to believe, because what does James tell us about belief? 
he tells us a few things about belief, I guess. But he says that even the demons believe, right? They believe there is one God, and and they shudder. They're they're afraid of it, and yet they're demons, right? They're condemned. Um, my very first week in Bible school, one of the professors read this verse to us, um, and he had a lesson, and he taught us about uh, belief and salvation, and, you know what it means to be saved. And then he handed us all a three by five index card, and he told us to write down the answer to what we need to do to be saved. And so we were all writing down our answers, and um, the only thing that he would accept is believe on the Lord Jesus. That's all he would accept. Um, and he would even he stretched it and he said, well, if you just put believe, I'll accept that. And looking back, I don't understand what he was thinking because you can believe in a you can believe in a monkey, right? That's not going to save you. Um, belief alone doesn't save you. It's the object of our belief and how you define that belief that really matters. You have to um, you have to define what it means to believe because even the demons again believe and. So what? They, they're they condemned. Um, but what is it that we have to believe about Jesus in order to be saved? We don't just believe that he was a person, don't just believe that he existed, um, but we have to put our faith and our trust in him. We have to repent and have an understanding of who he is and who we are in light of him. We have to surrender to him as our Lord. And surely the jailer understood this, and Paul and Silas made this clear. Um, but many people have taken this verse, which is a great verse. It's absolutely true. All we have to do is believe. But we need to define that. We need to qualify what does it mean to, to believe and who are we believing in. Yeah. Jeff. With Lydia, it says her and her household. Yes. And here it says you and your household. So does that mean everyone in her house? Jesus. What do you think? <laughs> well, it doesn't really What does it say about her household? Yeah, we talked about that a little bit last week. So our Presbyterian brothers, they'll look at these verses and they'll say um, that everybody in her household was baptized as an identification of their their part in the covenant that she has entered into. That because she had entered into covenant with Jesus, that her household is automatically seen as part of that covenant, part of that promise. And I'll say the same thing about the Philippian jailer, that everybody else is entered into that on their behalf. And they'll point back to the Old Testament and say that just as infants in the Old Testament were circumcised, so infants in the New Testament should be baptized as a an outward sign of that covenant. But we aren't Presbyterians. We are Baptists. So we believe that um, you have to put your faith in Christ and then you're baptized. We believe in uh, believer's baptism, that it is a sign of uh, willful identification with Christ, that we are letting everybody know, yes, we identify with Jesus. Yes, he is, again, our, our master, our Lord. We submit to him. We have believed in him. And so they will take, and they'll look at this verse and several of these verses in chapter 16, and they'll say, well, their whole family was baptized, and, and surely that includes infants, so that's why we baptize our infants. Well, 
What's that? <laughs> I don't know what that means. What's that mean? Explain that to me. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. But but that's not how we're saved, right? We're not saved because mom and dad were saved. Um, and Presbyterians, what's that? That's not their argument. Be fair yeah. to our brother. Well, that's what I was going to say. Presbyterians wouldn't say that. They're not saying that they're saved. Um, I'm sure there are people who would take and use this verse in that way. But um, they're saying they are part of that covenant under the believer in the household, which doesn't mean that they're saved, but um, means that they are kind of part of the church in a deeper sense than what we might think an unbelieving child is a part of our church. Yeah, it's kind of difficult. But Going back to uh, what you said, talking about belief on that index card. Yes. So, I mean, there's a Christian author who, I think he's dead now. He used to be a lot more popular than he is now. But one of the things that he had said was, um, in one of his books, is there's a guy on a desert island or something, or some un- unreached people group. And if the only verse that washed up onto their shore was John 6:29, that says, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. If that was the only verse that they had, they could be saved. So are you saying that that's... That that, that, that guy's be, wrong? That's, that's bad. Yeah, I'm saying that guy's wrong. Wow. Yeah. He's dead. <laughs> that dead guy's wrong. Okay. Just like a lot of other wrong dead guys. Because how do you believe on somebody you don't even know? Um, it says Jesus in the verse. Oh, okay. Jesus, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I've never thought through like a minimalistic type thing, like how many verses, like the well, smallest number of verses. You need, <laughs> uh, you need to know more than that. You need to know who it is that you're believing on, right? Um what did the jailer know? Yeah, because even in the Bible, wasn't there like a few other people that were named Jesus? You know, that wasn't Jesus. Yes. Yeah. So you need to know who you're talking about, right? So again, we we know that this wasn't all that happened, that Paul and Silas surely spoke with them and explained to them who this Jesus was, who the Messiah is the importance of the the incarnation, the fact that he took on flesh, the fact that he died on a cross because we owe a sin debt to a God who is angry because we have sinned against him. Um, You can't just say, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved if you don't have any context, if you don't define who Jesus is, if you don't explain what belief means. Um, And yeah, a lot of people use this verse in an evangelistic way and they'll just go and they'll say hey you need to believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved do you believe oh you believe okay well I'll see you in heaven thanks buddy and move on um, which is a tragedy because that is not salvation that's not um, that's not what the gospel is right right <laughs> all right um, other thoughts or questions before we move on it might be helpful just in case it does come up in their worlds to give them the theological terms for the free grace or easy believism. Just that's what it, that's what it is. I mean, yeah. Just in case they ever hear those terms. Yep, that's, that's what it's called. Easy believism, which um, it, yeah, 
all you have to do is believe, right? There's nothing else we have to do. We just got done going through the solas. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. There's nothing that we do to earn our salvation. So yes, we are saved by belief alone, but we need to identify who we're believing in and what that means to believe. Um, it's not just signing your name on a card or raising your hand or saying a prayer, right? Yeah, um, but it's submitting to Jesus as the Lord of your life and living accordingly because he will give you the strength and power to live accordingly. And that it's a prominent view. I mean, both the school that Tyler went to and the school that I went to are both involved in a conference called the Free Grace Conference. That's it, the whole conference is about that one issue, and they take a different view than what Tyler and I do. Yeah. And they would look at Jeremy and me today, and they would say, oh, well, you guys are adding to the gospel um, because you believe in more than just salvation by believing. Well, no, we don't. We believe in Jesus, and we believe that that belief is just weightier than, again, signing your name to a card. That if you truly believe, if God has come and re reformed you and regenerated you, then um, you will bear fruit. And they would disagree with that. They would say, well, you can just believe in Jesus. You can go off and you live however you want. Well, if Jesus comes and he makes you into a new creature, creation, then you're not going to go off and live however you want. You're going to truly be a, a new creature. You're going to live as such. Uh, Jesus said that every good tree will bear good fruit. So you can't just sign your name to a card or say a simple prayer and have some kind of fire insurance. If you are Jesus's, then that will be reflected in your lifestyle. Go ahead, Joseph. So, like, do you think they would struggle then with the verse that says, um, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Or See, they would say that's a discipleship verse, which I don't agree with now either. So they would make a distinction between salvation verses and discipleship verses. So if you want to be Jesus' disciple, then that's like a next step believer. That's You're really putting on your A game now if you want to be a disciple of Jesus. If you just want to be saved, all you have to do is believe. But if you want to follow after him, you want to be a disciple, then you get into these other verses, which is not a distinction that we see in Scripture. Yeah. So, if you guys want recommendations on what schools to maybe not go to, um, <laughs> we'll give you those later. <laughs> yes. I. Yep. Yeah. All right. Um, I think we are in verse 32. Well, let's go back to 31, and we'll just go from there. So, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then that household comes up a couple other times in the following verses. So let's see what else we see about um, his household, the jailer's household, in the following verses. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And they took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all of his household. So they didn't put it off. Um, I know that we do baptisms once or twice a year. It's not to say that we shouldn't do that. We need to baptize every night. But they saw the importance in water baptism. So that very night they took and they baptized them so they could be um, publicly identified with Christ. Not just him, but the rest of his household. Again, after 
um, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his household. And then verse 34, And he brought them into his house, that is, the jailer brought them into his house, just as Lydia did when she showed hospitality, and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So again, we see his household there mentioned as being taught the word of the Lord, uh, being baptized together with him, and then rejoicing with him in verse 34, having believed in God with his household. So... I am of the the understanding that they were all of understanding age where they could be taught, where they could embrace this, they could believe, they could rejoice together with them. I don't think there were any infants in that household. Um, and I still respect and love people who take that position, but I think they're wrong. Yeah, and like, what do you think, I think press parents deal with that verse where like Philip comes to the eunuch and uh, he says you know because like the eunuch want to be baptized and yeah. Philip's like well if thou believe this then thou may so he didn't speak King James English I know but <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I memorized in my head he, King James. <laughs> the Ethiopian eunuch was an adult so but they would use that to say that he was outside of the Jewish camp and um been a minute, but I think there are like 12 adult baptisms in the New Testament, and they'll point and they'll say, well, each one of those is somebody who was outside of the Jewish camp being baptized um, because, no, circumcision, because that's the connection they make between baptism and circumcision. So anytime you see a circumcision, it was somebody who wasn't Jewish. And they would say the same thing about baptism, that um, infant children would be baptized, and then if somebody comes in to a Presbyterian church or into that new covenant, as they would put it, um, later on after, and their parents weren't part of that covenant, then they would be baptized as an adult. So that's the only connection I could think they would make with that verse. And they would likely point out, too, that the earliest manuscripts don't contain that verse. So it's likely that that verse is original. <laughs> Acts 8.37. There are brackets around it in most Bibles. Anything else on baptism? Or Presbyterians? <laughs> or easy believism? <laughs> All right. Verse 36. Now, yes, verse 36, right? Now when they came, the now when day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, release those men. So this is just the next day. So that night they took the jailer um, and I guess they were allowed to go into his house and eat food and take and baptize his family and teach them. And then they went back into the jail. That's kind of like a weird little night where they got kind of released, but then they went back into jail. But yeah, field trip. <laughs> prison field trip. Do you do that all the time, Rex? Yeah, all the time. What they do, like up here in state prison at one time, when the warden was up here years ago, they lived on on property. You look down at the prison, there's a house there, and there's not as the SWAT teams there, but at one time that was the warden's house. And so the thing you're talking about, a good chance when they built that, that he was on property, right there, I mean, right there at the cave entrance, whatever. So they didn't have to go in out 
to his home. It was he was right there. That's the reason he was there so quick when that happened and grabbed the light and went in. So, so up there in Draper, was it customary for the inmates to go to the warden's house that's on campus they, and hang out? Did, yeah, years ago they did. They Dang. Oh, well, they clean it, yeah. <laughs> huh. Yeah. All right, so, yeah, it was just the next day that chief magistrate sent the police and um, they were told to release those men, which is, again, why I thought maybe one of the reasons that the other prisoners didn't bolt is because it was potentially just a, a short-term holding facility there and they weighed the options but we don't know it doesn't say that's just one possibility so they were told release those men and the jailer reported these words to paul saying the chief magistrates have sent to release you therefore come out now and go in peace but paul said to them they have beaten us in public without trial men who are romans speaking of himself and silas and have thrown us into prison, and now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid. And when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. So... Paul wasn't going to go quietly. He said, no, you're not just going to send us away, but we're Roman citizens, and you guys came and you beat us and you imprisoned us illegally. We didn't get a trial. You guys didn't follow the, the rules. You guys broke the Roman law in doing what you did to us. Now you have the magistrates come here, and, and they can deal with it. You don't just send us away quietly. Um, many people today would say that most of us are privileged, right? Um by just the tone of our skin because we are light pigmented people that we have privilege or power and I would disagree with that premise but um, anyway I don't think I do think that we are privileged as Americans I think that we are privileged to um, be in a Bible church I think that we are privileged in many ways and I don't think that's a bad thing and Paul was privileged in his Roman citizenship and he wasn't ashamed of his privilege he didn't repent of his privilege he used his privilege his Roman citizenship as leverage for the gospel and I think that's exactly the same kind of sense that we should take with any kind of um, any opportunity that we have any blessing that we have we should use it to leverage the gospel Paul before he was beaten before he was thrown in prison he was just as much a Roman citizen as he was after the fact. So was Silas, and so they could have told them then and spoken up and said, "You, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm a Roman, so you don't have to beat me. You don't have to throw me in prison. Why don't we go about this the right way?" But instead, he took that beating um, without speaking a word, without saying anything, and it wasn't until after that he said, "You know what? I think the, um, I think the gospel might be." In, in jeopardy here, that the reputation of the gospel might be in jeopardy. And I want people to know that what these guys did was not okay. And so it was at that point that he spoke up and he reminded them, hey, we're Romans and you guys broke the law and that's not cool. Um, so it's not a bad thing that he spoke up, that he used what he had um, for his benefit and for the benefit of the gospel.
and in verse 40 it says that they went out of the prison they entered the house of Lydia and when they saw the brethren they encouraged them and departed and I'm sure that he was there encouraging them with this story saying dude we told them we we were Romans and they were freaked out and they were scared (laughs) and they didn't know what to do and they were and they were begging us to leave because um, they knew that we were Romans so he he went out and he encouraged them after the fact that um, they they let him go and they begged him to leave. Thoughts or questions on that cool chapter and their release from prison? I, the Church of Philippi is really cool because in Paul's letter to them later on, it's the only church that he writes to where he says... Uh, so all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, including the elders and deacons. So they matured and graduated from their missions agency. <laughs> there you go. And they probably changed their name too. Yeah. But and it's, it's just cool that they had local church leadership at that time. Yeah. And down in verse 40, um, it says that they went out of the prison. They entered the house of Lydia. So remember, Lydia is this gal they met before. When they went down to the river, they didn't find a synagogue because they didn't have enough men there for a synagogue. It was just the women who were meeting there praying. But it says here that they saw the brethren and they encouraged them and departed. So it wasn't just a church full of women. Um, It started out with just women praying down by the riverside. But there were men there and these men... um, led this church to a point where they could have elders and deacons and uh, developed, graduated local church. So it's kind of cool. And these Philippian believers who knew that Paul was here in prison while he was there, um, when he wrote this letter to them, he was writing to them from prison in Rome. And one of the main themes of Philippians is about joy and rejoicing in the Lord and having joy in the Lord. Um, and I'm sure that when he was writing that, he was drawing back to when he was in Philippi in jail and remembering the story of how he was singing praises and hymns to the Lord, despite the fact that he was just beaten and whipped and, from our perspective, didn't really have much of a reason to rejoice in the Lord. Alrighty. Next week is chapter 17, which is a good chapter. We're going to get into... Thessalonica next week, or is that maybe the week after? No, we should get there, huh? All right. Good stuff. Will somebody close us out in prayer, please? All right, just it. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, allowing this opportunity to come together and expound on your word and learn about the apostles of the early church and uh, their great faith and just showing us how privileged we are and how much we should um, uh, be ready for persecution and, and all that. And please be with all our family who are not here, who did not make it, uh, that they would be safe. And your spirit would be with them the rest of this week. And uh, I say this in Jesus' name, amen. amen.